Hello and welcome to another episode of Turkey Book Talk, episode number 164. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Andrea Lemieux. She is a wine writer and the author of The Essential Guide to Turkish Wine, a handsome new coffee table book covering the producers, wineries, regions and native grapes in Turkey, as well as the history of winemaking in the country. There are currently around 150 wineries operating across Turkey, producing over 60 million litres of wine annually, roughly half of those wineries are small producers making fewer than 250,000 bottles a year and all involved in the industry face a number of well-documented political and economic challenges. We talk about that and how winemakers are trying to overcome those challenges in our conversation along with much else. But before we get started, remember that you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. If you'd rather read these interviews and listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Andrea Lemieux. I started by asking her about how and when she first came to Turkey and how she first got introduced to Turkish wine. Uh, yeah, so I first came to Turkey, it's been nine years now, and I came for a job. I was transferred from the U.S. by my company and came here for them. I, I left their employ shortly after I arrived, but the first year that I lived in Turkey, I lived, I've always been Istanbul-based, but I lived in Cevizlibar. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that area. So few people seem to be, but it's fairly conservative. There was not a lot of alcohol out there. So my wine discovery didn't really start until a year after I'd already lived here. And no, I really did not know much at all about Turkish wine. I'd been to Turkey before as a visitor, but I really don't recall having encountered wine anywhere that I ate while I was here as a tourist. 
So the breadth of wine that I saw, like the first time I stepped into the car for in Jihan gear was, I was very surprised by it. And I really just started drinking from the bottom shelf at Carrefour and working my way up. And as I worked through the wines, I became more and more curious about the Turkish grapes. During this time, I was also finally taking Turkish courses and so could actually pronounce the grapes. Because that was definitely a challenge at the beginning. I mean, especially, you know, a kuzguzu, that's, that's a tough one to say right off the top. And then as I learned more about the Turkish grapes, I became more interested in wine generally and started doing a lot of self-study, a lot of reading. I took the WSET level one course here in Istanbul. I did level two online. I'm working my way through the Italian wine scholar program. My main love, of course, is, is Turkish wine, but... There aren't any real Turkish wine courses. So my education has been more wine generally. And then the Turkish wine side of it is my own study, which I think is a nice way to say my own drinking. <laughs> and you took that WSET course in Turkish, I believe, which is pretty, uh, yeah, must have been quite difficult. Level one in Turkish, uh, because levels one and two are only available in Turkish here. And they wouldn't even let me do the test in English, which annoyed me a little bit because they're just computerized tests and they're ordering them from the London school. So it's like, really? you Okay, whatever. I passed it, though. I, I don't think I passed with very high marks, but I passed it. <laughs> and you now run um, wine tasting courses, I believe, in, in Istanbul and Ankara. In fact, yesterday you were you were speaking at one. I mean, what does that involve and how did you get started with that? I think calling them courses is a little bit a little bit more formal than what they really are. They're they're more wine tasting events. It's I feel like it's a little bit more informal than a course. And I started doing those maybe five, six years ago. Really it's just a way to help teach myself more about wine. And it started with a group of friends that and it I mean it grew really quickly. And then during the pandemic, I like everyone else moved to an online platform and now I do hybrid tastings with you know X number of people in my tasting space and I send kits to to anyone who cannot make it in person, either because they're in Istanbul, but I have exceeded my in-person capacity or because they're not in Istanbul. I ship kits around the country. I don't know, because I, I know I'm not the only person who's curious about the Turkish wine or who's a wine lover here, but so many people are intimidated by wine generally, by the prices of wine these days, and maybe because they don't know anything about Turkish wine, so they're afraid of the grapes that they can't say either. So every month I try to do at least one which is kind of like a first come first serve as far as signing up for it. And I try to make sure that everything has a different theme so that we're not tasting all the same wines all the time. But people can also contact me if they want to do private events. I do a lot of girlfriend birthday party kind of things. I've worked with a couple of the consulates here in Istanbul. And then yesterday, uh, as you said, I was in Ankara. A friend of mine, Tuba de Wild, started a fantastic organization based in Ankara called Vinatu. And she does these amazing wine event organizations. And her main focus is to highlight the women in wine in Turkey, because Turkey, fascinatingly, has a disproportionate amount of women in the industry. I mean, compared to anywhere else, wine is still generally a male dominated 
industry, but here in Turkey, the female workforce makes up about 65%. But, and that's everything from women who own wineries, who make the wine, who work in the vineyards. It's, it's really quite amazing. So I was in Ankara for her Aegean event yesterday, presenting about the native grapes of the Aegean, along with representatives, female representatives, of course, from several of the Aegean wineries. Why is that? Why is this sector particularly woman friendly? I think there are a couple of reasons behind that one. And in fact, one of the the female winemakers told me this because anytime I interviewed a woman for this book, I asked, is it more difficult for you to be a winemaker to, to work in the industry in Turkey? And all of them said no. And one of the, the winemakers told me it's because apparently in Turkey, women gravitate a little bit more towards the softer sciences. So things like food engineering, chemical engineering. And in Turkey, you need to have either a licensed onologue, a chemical engineer, or a food engineer signing off on all of the tests that they're legally required to do for wine. So if you already have a woman in that position doing that for a winery, in several cases, the transition from from doing the tests into becoming the winemaker has just been very seamless for a number of people. And then (laughs) as far as the women in the fields... (laughs) One winery told me that the the first few harvests they had, they hired both men and women. And they said the men came and drank tea, but the women came and worked. So they started only inviting back women. And you see this across the country because Turkey is somewhat unique, I think, in that most, if not every vineyard here is hand harvested, which outside of Turkey, you know, if if you're hand harvesting your grapes, that's like a huge selling point. That's something that people always put on their labels. And here it's just the way things are done. And uh, the only equipment that you'll see is the tractor coming to pick up the grapes that have been handpicked. And usually that's also the only man that you see in the vineyard is the guy driving the tractor. <laughs> so you're a relative newcomer to the scene, but you've gone deep. How did the idea emerge to write this book at this point? I'd come home from a vacation where I'd visited several several wineries in that country. Actually, I think I was in Israel, and one of them had this new Wine Routes of Israel book that somebody had, I can't remember who, had written a beautiful coffee table book. And I, I bought it as, you know, as a fantastic souvenir and got it home and was looking through it. And it just kind of popped into my head, like, why doesn't Turkey have this book? This is a phenomenal country for for tourism, which we all know. The gastronomy scene is just getting bigger and better every year. And then, of course, the wine. And I assumed that one of the many Turkish bloggers was working on this book. So I just sat around, twiddled my thumbs for a few months, and I didn't see any of the bloggers mentioning this. You know, nobody was talking about this. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll I'll do it. (laughs) And uh, I got my research partner, Emma Aslahan Bashir-Ros, a friend who I met in Turkish class here, who is a food historian from Coach University. And she she jumped on board with this with me and we just dove right into research and started visiting the wineries. Yeah, wonderful research process, I can imagine. Um, <laughs> not jealous at all. Um, 
You write in the introduction to the book that, quote, Turkey may currently hold the claim to the oldest archaeological evidence of winemaking, but Ottoman rule, religion and a somewhat closed society retarded the development of a domestic wine culture. When people think about wine countries, Turkey never seems to come to mind. Many who've heard of Turkish wine associate it with cheap, poor quality wine or the one or two exported bottles that they may be able to find in large stores. But while poor quality wines may have been the norm 15 or 20 years ago, the landscape has changed remarkably. What is that change? What does it mean in practice? And uh, if you could describe or speculate about what caused it. Well, what that means in practice is that not only do we have a greater volume of wine being produced here now than we did 15, 20, 30 years ago, but there are more and more small wineries that are run by people who are doing it for the love of wine. They're they're not the the big factory wineries pumping out, you know, red and white for the Mehane. These are wineries who often the the owners have a separate job that they're still working because you don't enter this industry, especially in this country, to make money. And with these kind of wineries opening, you're also getting higher quality wines, uh, wines that are just made more thoughtfully or people who are willing to experiment and do more than just, you know, red, white and pink. I mean, we have every kind of wine in Turkey. There's, of course, red, white and pink, but there's skin contact or, you know, orange, amber, whatever it is that you want to call that. Traditional method sparkling, tank method sparkling. We have pet nets now. There are all sorts of different styles of sweet wine, fortified wine. I mean, I, I think if you name it, you can find it here now. So in addition to the quantity and quality growing, the variety is also really expanded. A couple of the vineyards that really were responsible initially for this this push for quality in the early mid 90s were Umurbe, Gulorge, and Doluja with their Serafina brand. I think it was just because by the 90s, people, and by, and by people, I mean the wineries, and I guess I mean everyone, the wineries, the Turks who were traveling had been exposed to more gastronomy and more wine abroad at that point. And you had maybe now the second generation in some cases, like at Doluja, you had the second generation coming in and they'd been educated abroad and had been experiencing the high qualities of, of wine that people make in Europe and in the new world and coming home saying, well, why aren't we doing that good of a job? And in some cases, well, where are the native grapes? Like, I know there are native grapes here. Why isn't anyone working with those? So there were a number of factors, I think, that really contributed to that push. And at the time, also in the 90s, the government was giving grants to support agricultural programs, including uh, vineyard plantations. So there was some financial assistance for people who wanted to try to go this route. And yeah, and I, th I think then everyone else kind of saw, oh, wow, you're, you're doing this now. So it is possible. And it just was a fantastic domino effect. It's really interesting because that process started in the 90s. But then, of course, the AKP, a conservative mm -hmm. party with roots in political Islam, came to power in 2002. Mm -hmm. And obviously, since then, those kind of incentives that you're talking about there were lifted. And in fact, quite the opposite. There were disincentives to produce wine. Taxes went up, limits to promotional activities and whatnot. You say that despite all those, there are a proliferating number of vineyards and winemakers in Turkey. Is that correct? I do sense a growing number of boutique vineyards, particularly in Turkey 
like is west along the Aegean coast yeah. uh, and in Thrace. These are sites basically offering, some of them offering hotel options, tasting courses, restaurants, etc. And that may seem a bit counterintuitive to some listeners because they've got this narrative of the last 20 years of an Islamist government. But these places seem to be proliferating despite those yeah. challenges. Absolutely. And it seems it's it's almost like a response from the wine community to that, like the more the government tries to restrict what they do, the more they push back with either creative new wines or creative ways to circumvent the ban on advertising and just by creating more wineries. In fact, I met two very lovely women yesterday in Ankara who are opening a new family winery in the Chal region of Denizli in the Aegean. So it's like every time I look around, there are so many wineries that I either heard about just as I was finishing my book and didn't have a chance to to visit them in order to include them or that were on the verge of being opened but weren't quite there that I wasn't able to include. So it's like, you know, if I could sell off just a couple more few hundred copies of my book, I could absolutely do a second edition right now and include probably 10, 15 more wineries. It's, it's really incredible. And as you mentioned, there are so many wineries that have opened hotels and restaurants because this is this is how they're able to offer wine tastings is by doing it in the restaurant scene and because so many of the wineries are located kind of in the middle of nowhere the fact that they're putting in hotels several wineries especially in the the Thracian region offer kind of all-inclusive weekend packages and some of them aren't even weekend you can go any time of the week it's just an all-inclusive package and you stay in the hotel and you get your meals and there's unlimited wine and it's really given a boost to enotourism in Turkey. It's, I mean, it's unfortunate that they can't traditionally advertise that these things are on offer, but having been to most, if not all of the wineries at this point, I can say that somebody's doing something somewhere because most of these places were not empty when I turned up to visit. And you you need reservations. Like you can't just stroll into a winery and assume that you're going to get a table at the restaurant anymore. These are busy place, busy and popular places. So the ban on alcohol advertising came in in 2013. So not just wine, but all alcohol cannot be advertised in Turkey. There's also been various limits to promotional activities, obviously constant astronomical rises in taxes and considerable licensing hurdles. And all these factors have made things particularly difficult, not just for wine producers, but for alcohol sellers generally in Turkey. Just wonder if you could delve a bit deeper into what kind of effects these difficulties are having. Obviously, we're saying there's almost a counterintuitive opposite effect, but obviously they are presenting pretty particular hurdles in this environment. What strategies are winemakers adopting to overcome these particular hurdles? A number of them have employed marketing consultants regardless of the advertising ban because they find ways to do stealth marketing, if you will. So you can't advertise alcohol, but you know, you you can have people create wine clubs. And in some cases the wine clubs are just kind of a, a free-for-all. Any wine goes. Some of them are regionally specific. You can also call them dining clubs, which certainly gets around a lot of the advertising words. 
there are a number of wine routes in Turkey now. The the one in Orla being the strongest and uh, really as a, as a tourist, particularly if you're a new to Turkey tourist, the easiest one to negotiate because all the wineries are so very close to each other in that area. And they managed to advertise because they're not calling themselves wine routes. They They found that little loophole and they call themselves vineyard routes. And you can advertise a vineyard route, just not a wine route. So with cooperation with the wineries and with uh, some very clever marketing, people are are still managing to, to get the word out about their wine. And then there are really big tasting events in several cities every year. Izmir, Bursa, both have at least one every year. There are two in Istanbul. In fact, there's one coming up in mid-May, the Challenging Masterclass, and they have international experts come in to, to judge and to give panels and a number of the wineries turn up with their with their wines and you can do a walk around tasting and meet the wineries, meet the winemakers. And I, I think it's through activities like this that kind of the normal people are able to discover what is on offer without the wineries having to rely on traditional advertising. The taxes, I mean, unfortunately, there's not a way for any of us to get around that taxes issue. Between the taxes, the most recent increase being, you know, the worst one yet. And then, of course, the the difficulties that the lira has had over the last few months I think wine prices have gone up 30-40% since December. It's too early, I think, to see how bad of an effect that's going to have on the industry and on sales. And at some point soon, the wine is going to price itself out of the local buying power. And since local sales are more significant to their industry than exports, they, they need to make themselves saleable. I'm not sure that's really the best way to phrase that, but I, I think you know what I'm trying to go for. Yeah, that point about the festival, it reminds me of um, that story a few years ago in Adana where they used to have that Raka festival every yes. summer. And then they changed the name because of the advertising ban. And mm-hmm. they changed the name from Raka Festival to Turnip Festival and they just <laughs> kept it going. Yes. <laughs> nice, nice way around it. I suppose one way, I mean, you say there that uh, they're still pretty much dependent on the domestic market, but I suppose in theory, the pressure on that domestic market might actually help encourage a rise in exports. And those exports are at the moment quite low. So there does seem to be a bit of scope to boost those, boost awareness in Europe of uh, Turkish wine, in theory. And I would love to see that. There's there's more Turkish wine in Europe and in Australia than there is in North America. And there are really a few key wineries behind the push to do exports. I mean, there are a number of reasons why there are not more Turkish wines exported. But one of them is that, you know, the trend right now in wine is that these smaller, more boutique wineries, these are the things that people want to drink now. This is this is just the current trend. And, you know, big equals bad, even though that's not always true. But, you know, people want to drink the family run wine, the wine that, you know, somebody's hands have really been on. And so that's these smaller wine producers. But for the producers, in order to really make it worth everyone's while, both for the exporter or sorry, the importer and for the producer, they the the importers want to be able to purchase, you know, say five thousand bottles, and then they can really make a decent sale out of the five thousand bottles. But that might be the entirety that the winery is producing. 
so they can't sell all of their wine to the importer. What would be ideal would be if a number of the wineries here either regionally or, you know, people who focus on a specific grape or however they want to organize themselves, if they could cooperate together to create, you know, kind of like export packages, if you will, which would, I think, make things easier. I'm, I have a lot of suspicions about why the exports aren't as high as I would like to see them. But having not tried to ever deal with the paperwork behind exporting or importing alcohol, <laughs> I, I don't entirely know the ins and outs to know if my suppositions are on the nose or not. <laughs> so most Turkish winemakers use foreign grapes. Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc seem particularly popular among whites. Merlot is very common among the reds. Why is that? There are very distinct native grapes that you can find, but they do seem to be relatively neglected. Some winemakers don't even use them at all. Why is that? Some of that is because some of there's, I mean, there's a pretty legitimate reason for some of that. In the early 20th century, phylloxera decimated the vineyards in Europe. And also kind of interestingly, during this period, the Ottoman Empire was one of the largest wine exporters in the world because as this louse was decimating the, the vineyards in Europe, they could no longer produce wine, but the Ottoman Empire still had wine. But eventually it made it to Turkey and it destroyed the vineyards here right around the same time as the population exchange, during which it would have been particularly the Greek population, but the, the Christian Ottomans who were the ones making wine. So with them leaving and with the vineyards dying, there was this period with nothing, essentially. And then Turkey, when they reinvigorated the, the wine industry, much like many other countries in Europe, you also see this in um, in Italy, particularly in northern Italy and I think a little bit in Spain, people planted French grapes because French grapes, apparently, please don't get mad at many French people, French grapes apparently are much easier to grow than other varieties. So when Turkey was replanting its vineyards, they did the same thing. They, they went to Europe, they learned how to make wine in Europe, and they brought back vines that would take quickly and you know, start giving them harvests as soon as possible so that they could get the industry going. And it just kind of stuck like that. And because there are not a whole lot of records about what wine looked like in the Ottoman or Byzantine period, I I truly don't know which native Turkish grapes may or may not have been popular during those periods, but a lot of them were lost during this this phylloxera and the, the reinvigoration of, of the vineyards. Happily, though, I think the last handful of years, we've seen more and more wineries return to native grapes. I mean, as you said, there are definitely a number of wineries that only work with international grapes. But more and more are either focusing on the Turkish varieties that we know, like, you know, what I call the the big six, like Akuskuzu, Kalajit Karasa, Boazkere, Narinja, Bornova Mischetti, Emirsch. But they're also searching their regions for grapes that have been forgotten, like Likia in the Mediterranean in the Taurus Mountains has brought us Ajikara, Fersun, and Marzifon Karasa. Pasheli. Uh, I love Pasheli so much. I mean, A, I love their wine, but B, the dedication to 
kind of reinvigorating and rescuing Turkish grapes is is really strong in that company. And they were the first ones to bottle 100% Yapanjak. They've brought us Kalorko and Chakal Uzum and several other grapes. And they do it slowly, slowly over years by doing micro vinifications, you know, like they might get a hundred bottles of something, but if, if they think there's potential there and it's going to make a good wine eventually, then they keep going. And it just, in an industry that's already incredibly expensive here, this is yet another thing that's very, very expensive. So you, you need to have, I think the passion for the native grape behind you to, to really dig in and, and do this because you know, you're going to sell Merlot, you know, you're going to sell Shiraz, you might not sell Keten Gümlek, you know, so it's, it's a gamble if, if you want to put your attention on the native grapes. I would buy Keten Gümlek if I saw it. I've never, never even heard of that one, but uh, <laughs> that's a, sounds, that's sounds a good. specific to uh, Gelveri winery, which is kind of halfway between Cappadocia and Aksaray. And I'm pretty sure that Lakov still has a few bottles of it. It's not easy to find because Udo makes very, very small quantities. Again, he's one of those wineries that makes only a couple hundred bottles of certain wines because the, the grapes he uses are so very rare. Now, as a holiday, I think a very nice week or two can be spent driving around, particularly Turkey's Aegean coast, visiting some of these winemakers or all of the winemakers in that region. You mentioned earlier the uh, Urla wine route, which I believe was set up quite recently, but it was a kind of pioneering initiative to link basically a number of winemakers and vineyards and establishments together. You can visit these winemakers tasting in some of them or all of them and sleeping on site at others. So what do you make of these new, sometimes boutique establishments and which would you particularly single out for praise or recommend to listeners? Uh, I mean, I love anyone who who opens a winery, I think, regardless of the size. <laughs> uh, I, I love to see the new the new wineries here. And I think, as I as I mentioned, Orla is just the easiest one to visit because it is so very well organized and the wineries are right next to each other. And they work with if, if the winery, for example, doesn't have a hotel on site, you don't have to worry because there are a, a few hotels that work in cooperation with the wine route and that are in fact part of the wine route. So you you can stay in one of those hotels if you can't get into one of the wineries. And as much as I do love the wineries in Orla, it kind of harkens back to the to the last topic, the Orla wineries tend to focus more on the international varieties. So that's kind of a hard question to answer. I mean, for me personally, <laughs> because I, I really like the wineries that uh, that put a little bit more attention onto the native grapes. But I think if you're going especially to the Orla region, and also if, you, if you're in the Orla region, the thing to know is that there are a number of wineries that are adjacent to, but are not necessarily part of the wine route for, for a variety of, of reasons that they're not part of the, the route yet. Uh, so there, there's a brand new winery that just finished their tasting space and they don't yet have an on-site hotel, but they will soon have like two, three guest rooms. They opened in September, 2021 called Hoos. 
And they are one of the reasons they're not actually part of the official route is because at the moment they bring in fruit from a number of the other regions in Turkey. So, for example, they have an emir. Uh, that they bring in from Cappadocia. And to be an official part of the Orla wine route, you have to have, I think, 65% of your grapes have to come from Orla. So they're not quite there yet, but they're hoping to be eventually. And nearby them, a new winery to officially to the route, Chakir Winery, has a really lovely Bornova Mischetti. Very nice restaurant, a small but, you know, couple room on-site, like guest house. Ida Balada, I love. They are not an official part of the winery. Getting up to them is mildly terrifying if you are, like me, not a good driver because they are high on the mountain and it's a very twisty, windy, no safety rail road to get up there. (laughs) But once you're up there, the view is magnificent. (laughs) But I think if you also want to explore other areas, like for um, Thrace, for example, Barbare is one of those that has the uh, all-inclusive package. And as much as they do only work with international grapes, I love their wine. And if you are a red wine drinker, that is the place to do your all-inclusive package. And then near them is Umerbe. You can stop in at Umerbe. He makes such nice Sauvignon Blanc. Barel Balada is nearby, and he has a very nice restaurant. And then if you move more into Kirklarala, there is, of course, uh, Akin Gurbus, who has some just gorgeous wines. And he has a very nice restaurant where you can do tastings. Chomlinja is there. And then you have your choice of Arcadia or Vino de Serra. Vino de Serra does an all-inclusive package. Arcadia's is not really all-inclusive, but they have a very nice hotel, a restaurant, and they're surrounded by what they like to call their edible landscaping. They source as much of their their products for their kitchen as they can on site, which is fantastic. And the the menu changes seasonally there. Saranta is up there. And then, of course, you can drive farther up and do Edirna, where Arda is, and Edrine Winery. I mean, so it's you can kind of go in any direction now in Turkey. And <laughs> I could probably talk forever about this. So I'm going to just stop right now. <laughs> <laughs> Pashelio is up there in, in Thrace as well, I believe, uh, which you mentioned earlier. Focuses. Chile has some vineyards up in Thrace, but their uh, their winery itself is in Izmir. They are unfortunately not set up to take visitors and do tastings. And I don't know if if Sait Bay ever hears this, maybe hint, hint at, you know, doing that. That would be fantastic. <laughs> Pull your finger out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so for listeners who may be in Istanbul or planning to visit Istanbul, Where would you recommend to go drinking? What are the top wine bars or wine cellars or restaurants with good selections of local wines? Uh, There are more and more now. And I actually have a a list of places that I have yet to check out and to be able to visit. My favorites are Karaf Istanbul, which is in Besiktas. Not only do they have a great food menu, but really extensive list of bottles that the buy the glass menu is a little limited but like really well selected with an eye towards native grapes but extensive by the bottle and they organize i don't think it's weekly his goal was weekly i'm not sure he's there yet but he does organize wine tastings on i think fridays and saturdays in Bayolu, there are several 
So Solera, which has been kind of the the original wine bar, in my opinion, and they are still going strong. The staff there are so friendly and they know their wine backwards and forwards. Bayolo Shirap Hanesi has also got a fantastic wine list. Over on the Asian side is Bordeaux Shirap Hane. And I know it's not really a wine bar, but Aida over there is a fantastic Italian restaurant with, oh, yeah. Yeah, with a really great Turkish and Italian wine list. And it's really amazing how some of the Turkish wines pair well with the Italian food on their menu. And then I think jumping back over to Beolu for restaurants, Aheste, I have always loved their wine list. Delicious food as well there. Oh, isn't it so good? I love their tasting menu. And then right near them, um, Komedus is a nice little bar deli. I mean, they've only got a couple tables, but... You know, you can sit in there with your cheese plate and your charcuterie and, you know, whatever bottles they sell, you can order one to to, to drink. Mikla has a fantastic wine list, especially if you're interested in kind of more natural wine, organic wine production. Foxy Nishantasha, I have enjoyed uh, both their food and their wine list. There are more and more coming. And, and I, I love seeing that as much as I love seeing the new wineries. <laughs> So this is whetting everybody's appetite, I think. <laughs> if you had to recommend a particular bottle at the moment, oh, either red or white or both red and white, what is it that you would particularly flag up for listeners and why? Oh, so hard. Tough question. Um, it is such a tough question. I think right now the grape that I am the most excited about in Turkey is Chalkarasa. And Pasheli makes everything under the sun with Chalkarasa. But their red wine is, I think, what really highlights what this grape is and can be. It's it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful red wine, and it's a little bit of a splurge. Although, <laughs> what isn't a little bit of a splurge right now? But I definitely recommend that one. And for white, oh gosh, what am I excited about for white right now? Yeti Bilgilaj which is one of the Aegean wineries, um, also very close to Ephesus. So if anyone wants to take a trip down to Ephesus, the winery and their hotel and restaurant are only about seven kilometers away, so you can stay down there. They just released recently a dry Bornova Mischetti that is really beautiful. So yeah, I think those two. That was Andrea Lemieux. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 164. For more, do check out her website, thequirkycork.com, where she writes much more about Turkish wine. And remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk Turkey Recap. 
Turkey Recap is, among other things, a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've also got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.